Welcome to the Falk Salem Podcast. Each month we'll bring you a mix of operational announcements and clinical pieces to keep you up to speed. Through our monthly podcasts, our goal is to put the tools and education right in the palm of your hand. By keeping you up to date, we hope that we can empower you to continue bringing exceptional medical care to the city of Salem and beyond. Any and all material we release has been edited to comply with HIPAA standards. Hello everyone, I'm Dustin and this is the outline for the October 2020 podcast. First is general announcements, then an FAQ on the airway checklist, followed by an interview with our Spotlight employee Carol, then a discussion on our Spotlight protocol which is on ketamine, and lastly a 2020 protocol update. Announcements for October 2020. Big news for October. With flu season creeping up on us, we have a chance to help our community out by teaming up with Marion County Health on delivering and administering flu shots and assisting with COVID-19 testing. This is an opportunity for us to continue to take care of our community even more than you already do. We will make an announcement and send out an email with all the information when the project gets a green light. Next, we are starting a NEOP this month. We will have two paramedics and one EMT coming into the field. Let's make them feel welcome. To touch on our PPE, it has been noticed by many of the crews that some people have been stashing PPE in the ambulances. They've been finding stacks of gowns and glasses in places in the rigs. Please refrain from doing this. All extra PPE needs to be placed back on the shelf so we can keep an accurate count. This especially goes for eye protection. After your shift, please clean and put away your eye protection back into your COVID box and replace any other PPE you have used throughout the day. Next, I want to re-remind everyone to wear masks when you come into the station. It's the best way to keep everybody safe. To all of you artistic people out there, Bianca is reaching out to the community to have people send in coloring book ideas or sketches that relate to EMS, fire, or the city of Salem. We can put these together for a coloring book for our pediatric patients. So brainstorm some ideas and send them to Bianca. Her email address is biancapaul at falk.com. That's B-I-A-N-C-A dot P-A-U-L at F-A-L-C-K dot com. Next, I want to give a big shout out to Carl for getting us our breast cancer awareness shirts. If you have received your breast cancer awareness shirt from Carl, you are allowed to wear them on duty throughout the month of October. This applies only to the breast cancer awareness t-shirt. The polos and the EMS t-shirts are no longer allowed on duty until next summer. And as always, please make sure you're taking care of yourself. Be there for each other, keep a positive mental attitude, and take some time for yourself and for your needs. That's all for our announcements. Be safe out there, friends. Earlier this month, Dustin and I sat down with everybody that we could find, especially the full-time crews, and we went through with familiarizing everyone with the airway checklist that is being rolled out as part of our 2020 airway protocols. And this is in an effort to move us from a thought process of using rapid sequence intubation, or RSI, and changing that over to DSI, or delayed sequence intubation. Another way to think about that term would actually be to swap that out for deliberate sequence intubation. This checklist is supposed to help us make sure that all of our ducks are in order, everything is ready to go, we have all of our monitoring devices in place, we've gone through a number of uh, 
uh, possible outcomes when we decide to go ahead and intubate, and we have all of our backup plans and everything prepared for us. The other thing that this allows us to do is it allows us to not only check if we're ready to intubate them by running through the checklist and looking to see if we have all of our equipment ready to go, but then we also get to ask ourselves the question, is the patient ready for us? to perform this procedure. And we do that by looking at not only their pulse oximetry and making sure that that's ready, but then we're also looking at that in comparison to their MAP score or their mean arterial pressure score. And by getting a set of vitals and calculating that, uh, which is two times your diastolic plus your systolic divided by three, we're looking to make sure that that MAP score is above 65. And that's gonna tell us that the patient, along with a really good pulse oximetry score of 94% or greater, that's giving us the green light from the patient that they're ready for us to go. Now, we've done a lot of training here with this and we'll get with you individually and we'll go over uh, more of that training. But in this particular section, uh, there was four uh, particular questions that came up during that training in conglomerate that we wanted to get everybody. So this is our FAQ for that airway checklist uh, training that we did with the uh, full-time and some of our part-time staff uh, with everybody. The first uh, question that came up is, are we really going to do this deliberate sequence intubation, this delayed sequence intubation checklist if time is working against us and the patient is having an anaphylaxis or like an anaphylactoid sort of an example, right? So the patient is rapidly losing their airway, they're deteriorating, and we need to get in there and artificially take that airway, put something in its place. So if they do have a lot of swelling and they lose that airway, we've already protected it with an airway there in place. And the, the real solid answer is this, is that I can't think of a better example of why we should be doing a delayed sequence intubation checklist to make sure that everything is ready to go and everything is lined up for this particular type of patient. This is when we have more chips on the table and the stakes are higher. We need to make sure we have all of our backup plans ready to go. The patient's been sedated. The patient has pain control on board. We've pre-oxygenated the patient. Their vital signs are in place. And we have uh, even have push-dose epi that's just buying us more and more and more time as we give that to that patient. And we have at least one IV in the middle of all this. This is not the patient that I want to rush in and then suddenly realize oh, this is the patient I need that bougie on. Maybe I should have prepared an undersized and an oversized ET tube to be sure that when I get in there, I may be expecting them to take a 7.5, but things have already swollen up to the point that I'm down to a 6.5 maybe. Maybe that's exactly when you should have all of those pieces already uh, prepared as well as having our tertiary backup plans like our Krite kits already ready to go. This is exactly why we run that checklist. So we don't miss any of those steps and we get everything uh, all set up. And this really comes with the, the thought about this, you know, we're starting this timer and we're waiting a specific amount of time um, to show that that patient's vital signs are gonna stay stable. And yeah, it can definitely feel like a little bit of a delay. But there are so many things that we can get prepared during that time frame. As soon as we know their vital signs are ready to go, we can start that timer just so long as that checklist has been completed. The next example here that we have was the question about, are we going to run the DSI um, if this patient has significant trauma? And the answer is no, uh, because really with hemodynamically unstable trauma, penetrating injuries to the chest, uh, to the abdomen where somebody is exsanguinating and bleeding and they have an airway problem, that patient needs a surgeon. That patient is a, 
has a, a time working against us. We're not going to use pressors in that patient. In fact, our MAP scores are going to hover right around that 65 mark with the amount of saline we're going to give them, allowing for permissive hypotension. What we really need is we need to take that patient to a surgeon as fast as possible. So we're going to have to do what we have, whatever we can do uh, to protect that patient's airway during that time. Um, and transport them to the hospital as quick as possible. So we're not gonna be running the DSI in this particular case. If we need to take the airway, it's probably gonna happen in route, or we're gonna try to transport and pre-notify the uh, ER, have them ready to go with everything uh, on standby. So as soon as we roll in the door, we can start giving that patient blood product and things like that. Um, now there's another type though of trauma that we should definitely consider. If this patient is hemodynamically stable secondary to trauma, so they're not exsanguinating anywhere, but that patient has isolated laryngotrauma, and we may be considering this patient as having a swelling, if they're having some sort of a degeneration of their uh, airway, like uh, inside of their larynx, this is where we can slow things down, get set up with that DSI, get all of your parts and pieces and everything set up and everything ready to go. You know, especially with that really irritable larynx, this may be that patient that as soon as you touch that larynx with that ET tube, that their larynx swells shut. This is exactly why we want to slow things down on this particular patient. They're not bleeding out, their vital signs are stable. We just need to make sure we don't lose that airway after significant like blunt force laryngotrauma. I'm going to slow it, all down, slow it all down, run the DSI, have all my backup plans and have everything ready to go so when I take that airway, I'm taking it to win and I have all of my tools and everything prepared. So don't just put it in your mind that, ah, trauma alone, I'm not going to run the DSI. It's hemodynamically unstable trauma where they are actively bleeding out and they need a surgeon, we're not going to run the DSI. If they're hemodynamically stable, and we don't have suspected injuries in other ways, and we are still rapidly losing that, uh, that uh, airway, let's run the DSI, make sure we're getting it right. The next question we had, really, really great question, comes down to what if we can't get an IV in place? Uh, the patient is too restless, too agitated with that uh, agitated hypoxia that we can't get an IV in place. And the answer is IM ketamine is going to be the way that we need to go. Um, now, the biggest hurdle with all of this is the volume of that IM injection. And we're trying to get 200 milligrams on board to try to positively uh, kind of slow that patient down a bit, give them some bronchodilation, allow us to take that airway in a little bit more of an effective process. But ketamine is supplied 500 milligrams and 10 milliliters of solution. That brings us down to a concentration of 50 milligrams per milliliter. I need to get 200 milligrams in on this patient. That means I need to do an IM injection of four milliliters. That's just too much for one particular IM injection. We don't ever really want to go over about three milliliters total, and even that's kind of pushing it. We want lower volumes and maybe more muscle groups. So break it up over two different injections. We still only want 200 milligrams. I'm gonna break it up into two 100 milligram injections. So two milliliters a piece. And I'm gonna choose two different muscle groups and two different sites. And I'm gonna make those injections there, allowing for an even faster uptake of that uh, ketamine. That's gonna slow our patient down. It's gonna bronchodilate them. It's gonna allow them to be a bit more accepting of some of our you know, airway stabilization techniques. 
maybe allowing us to help assist bag that patient or try a little bit of PEEP on this patient, maybe try a little bit of CPAP with this patient, or even just allow us to get that IV so we can continue down the pathway of that RSI and DSI. The last uh, question that came up during this training was um, the use of ketamine and rocuronium in pregnancy. And ketamine is contraindicated um, with pregnant patients. And that kind of ends up throwing a little bit of a, of a hitch in our giddy up here about um, if that is our induction med, and we're only carrying ketamine here as our induction med, but it's contraindicated in pregnancy, how are we going to run the DSI? What's going to actually be my induction medication of what we're going to do with pregnancy? Um, and what this really looks like, the ultimate answer is um, you need to double check yourself. Do we need to take this airway right now? Is there a possibility that we can tr uh, rapidly transport, notify the receiving facility of the impending need uh, for potential airway uh, degeneration and have them get ready with everything that they need uh, there? And maybe we try rapid transport first. Or are we too far out? Maybe it's that anaphylaxis in uh, the pregnant patient as well. And we just don't have the time to safely transport them and risk losing their airway en route. But we don't want to use ketamine. Ketamine is contraindicated for use in pregnancy because it is known to cause birth defects. In a study that's been done over the last 20 years in vitro and in vivo, they've both demonstrated that ketamine has actually triggered neuronal cell death in immature developing brains inside. I mean, there's even longer term studies about um, children having degeneration of like personality disorders and onset of schizophrenia and things like that secondary to how ketamine interacts with their brain in vitro. So um, it's contraindicated in that case. Um, what we need to do if we, we're really thinking about if we need to take this patient's airway, we're probably going to turn back to the use of Atomidate and the use of fentanyl and Versed the way that we have for RSI in the past. Even more basic than that, online medical control. Call online medical control, let them know what we've got going on, um, get that uh, expert in your pocket for figuring out what's going to be the best case scenario and what we need to do. Um, so that's going to be kind of the answer on this is we're probably not going to use ketamine, but get online medical control on board. Start your transport early, figure out do we really honestly need to take this airway right this minute or could we make it? to the hospital where there's more tools, uh, we have more staff, we have more experts specific uh, to um, you know, maybe the emergency that's going on at hand. But if we absolutely positively needed to, um, Atomidate, Fentanyl, and Versed are probably going to be our answers in all this. Uh, this concludes our section here with the frequently asked questions. If you have any other questions or if things start to uh, come up as we're using this uh, in the field, please send us an email. Give us your feedback. Let us know how it's going, and uh, we'll try to put it in future segments. I am here with Carol, and she is our employee spotlight piece. <laughs> She's great, and we're going to talk to her to have you... Tell us a little about yourself. Um, what drew you to become an EMT? Well, I really like helping people, and I thought this is probably the best way to do that. I saw the program and I went for it. This Here is, I am. This is like your second kind of career, right? You had something going on before. Yeah, I was in manufacturing for a good part of my adult life. It was not enjoyable. It was a really toxic work environment, <laughs> physically and emotionally, so it was, uh, it was really quite a nice change for me. 
and I wasn't able to help anybody there. Good. It wasn't yeah. fulfilling like at all. Yeah. Would you have any words of advice for new EMTs coming on? Just to be patient with yourself, know you're going to mess up and know you're not going to feel like you have a place, but you do have a place and it takes time to get all settled in. So I think it took me a good month to not feel completely lost on a call and run over. Oh, <laughs> so it worked. Yeah, it just be patient with yourself. You're new. You can't be new and good at the same time. You can be good or you can be new, but you can't be you can't simultaneously be good and new. Do you have any plans for medic school or do you enjoy being an EMT? No, I don't. That frightens me. I don't want to hurt anybody. So I think <laughs> the, the threat of hurting somebody is it's quite large and I just fear myself and you know that I would make a mistake. But I really do enjoy being an EMT. And even if I, I leave here and go venture off and go learn something else, uh, I think I would stay here part-time at least to just stay in it. I really enjoy it. I like the interactions and patient care. There's always that kind of aspect of like being the boots on the ground and in the community doing something yeah. like this. Yeah, like I'm actually helping. It's nice. What do you do after work to like decompress? Well, I like to drink beer but not on shift, you know, so I don't, <laughs> when I'm, uh, when I have to work, I wait till my weekend. So I, I like beer occasionally. Um, I love Oregon. spending time with my child. We take off, we go to the beach, we go to the lake, we go hiking, we go exploring. So that's my just decompression. Is, yeah, I just have one. She's six. Her name is Violet. She's mm. very sweet. And we homeschool. We've always homeschooled. I know everybody's homeschooling now. But um, yeah, so that's a big thing for me to take her out and go explore and teach her things and teach her about life and nature. And Yeah, it's a lot of fun. That's doing my decompression. Yeah, it's good. I can focus on her. Well, focusing on you, um, I've pulled up your sense. Some interesting information about you and what you've done here for Falk since you've been an EMT with us. You were hired in April of 2018. You've averaged around 900 calls a year. That's insane. <laughs> since you've been here, I pulled these records about a week ago, but since you've been here, you've done 2,207 calls. That's a lot. For your career here at Falk. I've always wondered. And I understand that you are a Timbers fan. I am. We actually have season tickets. Of course. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> to put that in Timbers terms, you've taken care of approximately 11% of the capacity it would take to fill the Providence Soccer That's Center. That's crazy. Or 44.14 Timbers tour buses <laughs> of people. I like this. Yeah. And this, is when, this thing when I found out Putting that we it could, into perspective that we could do this. Yeah. It's a lot of people. If you spent one hour with each of your patients, you have done 92 complete 24-hour days of taking care of patients. I'm exhausted. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's about that time to retire. 92 24-hour days. Wow. Well, I hope this uh, is kind of valuable for you and lets you know how valuable you are to this company. Thank as well you. As just an EMT in general. Like, and likewise, I appreciate everybody here, management, you guys, you're all great. Everybody's so easy to work with. It's wonderful. It's a great well, it's place. It's easy to work with you. You're Thank you. Such a smiling face. <laughs> appreciate it. Thank you for your time, Carol. For this month's Spotlight Protocol, we're going to be reviewing ketamine hydrochloride. We're going to be looking at the protocol changes that are being released with the 2020 protocols. And we're going to do a deeper dive on what ketamine is, how it's supplied, and how we might interact with it in the field. Ketamine is primarily sold throughout the world under a few different brand names. 
Ketalar, Calypsol, Ketamin, Ketamina, Ketaminol, Ketanest, Ketaset, and Vetalar. Ketamine has different effects on the body by antagonizing NMDA receptors, and this is thought to be responsible for its anesthetic, amnesic, and dissociative and hallucinogenic effects. NMDA receptor antagonism results in analgesia by preventing central sensitization in the dorsal horn neurons. In other words, ketamine's actions interfere with pain transmission in the spinal cord by interrupting NMDA neurotransmission at higher doses. Bizarrely enough, though, at lower doses, ketamine has been shown to potentiate this neurotransmission of NMDA, thus causing hallucinations, dissociation, out-of-body experiences, and thus has been used recreationally to induce these side effects. At mid to high range doses, ketamine produces a hemodynamically stable anesthesia via that central sympathetic stimulation without affecting respiratory function. Animal studies have shown that ketamine has neuroprotective properties and there's no evidence of elevated intracranial pressure after ketamine dosing in humans. Low dose perioperative ketamine may reduce opioid consumption overall and chronic post-surgical pain after specific surgical procedures. However, long-term analgesia effects of ketamine in chronic pain patients has not been fully demonstrated. Ketamine is also a bronchodilator and is useful for it as an induction agent when intubating patients with severe bronchospasm. Its indications are used as that induction agent for use in RSI and DSI intubation procedures, and it's also indicated for our protocols for pain control. In adult dosing for pain control, this is going to be given with 25 milligrams via an IV or an IO slow push, or 50 milligrams as an IM injection. You may repeat this once after 30 minutes unless the patient develops nystagmus, hallucinations, or that dysphoric symptom. Ketamine must be diluted prior to IV or IO administration for pain management. Dilute the 25 milligrams, which is usually right around half a milliliter, in 9.5 milliliters of normal saline, bringing the total volume up to 10 milliliters, and you're gonna push that whole 10 milliliter flush slowly over the course of a few minutes. Your pediatric dosing. Ketamine is not approved for use in pain control in pediatric patients less than 15 years of age. If your patient is over the age of 15 years old and is under the weight of 180 pounds, we're going to use the pediatric dosing of 0.3 milligrams per kilogram up to a max dose of 25 milligrams slow IV push in the diluted fashion. Outside of the EMS realm, in addition to the analgesic and bronchodilator properties, ketamine has rapid-acting antidepressant effects. This new cutting-edge treatment using ketamine to treat depression is currently being pioneered by psychologists treating patients in clinic with ketamine. Ketamine is also sold as a nasal spray known as Spravato and referred to on the street as K-spray. The compound is actually a, an antimere known as S-ketamine. It is structurally the same chemical, but is organically constructed as a mere image of its base and has been found to be more potent than the base compound of ketamine alone. 
Spravato is exclusively used for the treatment of drug-resistant depression. Spravato is supplied in a set of nasal spray applicators, each inhaler being used as part of a single dose. Each unit contains only two total sprays, with each misting containing 28 milligrams per spray. Doses are administered within clinics, where patients are monitored by their physicians and their staff, watching for acute behavior changes, developing hypertension or tachycardia, or anaphylactoid reactions. In the veterinary world, ketamine is used to manage pain among large animals and is commonly sold as Vetilar, which is very similar to the name Ketilar, which is how it is sold for human consumption. It is one of the most commonly stolen medications from veterinary clinics that is then used for recreational drug use. Interestingly, ketamine appears not to produce sedation or anesthesia in snails. Instead, it appears to have an excitatory effect. Anyways, back to the real information. Side effects and notes. Increased blood pressure due to catecholamine release is a side effect of administration of ketamine. An emergent reaction can also occur in about 5 to 30% of patients. The duration of action is about 10 to 20 minutes IV, and continued sedation must be provided before the induction agent wears off. Ketamine should not be given to patients with schizophrenia or a history of psychosis due to the potential of exacerbating this very condition. Ketamine is contraindicated with patients with eye pain or trauma, have known pregnancy, have non-traumatic chest pain, or again, patients with a history of schizophrenia or acute psychosis. Recreational use has been traced back to 1967, when it was referred to as Mean Green and Rock Mesk. Recreational names for ketamine include Special K, K, Kitty, Ket, K2, Vitamin K, Super K, Honey Oil, Jet, Super Acid, Mauve, Special LA Coke, Purple, Cat Valium, Nod Off, Skittles, Blind Squid, Kelly's Day, New Ecstasy, Psychedelic Heroin, Bump, or Majestic. A mixture of ketamine and cocaine is known to exist that's referred to as Calvin Klein, or CK1. For chronic recreational uses, urinary tract symptoms have been collectively referred as ketamine-induced ulcerative cystitis or ketamine-induced vesicopathy, and they include urge, incontinence, decreased bladder compliance, decreased bladder volume, overactivity, and painful blood in the urine. The time of onset of lower urinary tract symptoms varies depending in part on the severity and chronicity of ketamine use. All reported cases where the user consumed greater than 5 grams per day reported symptoms of lower urinary tract pain, and dysfunction. Urinary tract symptoms appear to be the most common in daily ketamine users who have used the drug recreationally for an extended period of time. These symptoms have presented only in one case of medical use of ketamine, and however, following a subsequent dose reduction, these symptoms were resolved. It is important to note that in our system, we are not using ketamine as a chemical sedation agent. Ketamine's application for us mainly falls in the pain control aspect after opioids have either been ruled out or have been maximized and have not been found to control the patient's pain, or in use of deliberate or delayed sequence intubation, that DSI sort of a technique, and it's used as our induction agent to remove pain 
and to provide a dissociative, sedative, hypnotic for that patient that allows us to prepare them and then complete that intubation procedure. 2020 protocol update. Matt Black and Salem Fire Department have completed the new 2020 protocol rollout. Matt has a presentation recorded on target solutions over these changes. The presentation is only about 15 minutes long, so it shouldn't take you much time. The big changes that we will be training on is cardiac arrest in pregnancy, patient restraint, and the airway checklist. Cole and myself got to the majority of the company reviewing the airway checklist, but if you have any further questions, come see Matt, Cole, or myself to see if we can get you an answer. For the rest of these changes, we'll be training on them in the upcoming months. Please take time to study these changes and re-review Matt's presentation if needed. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Falk Salem Podcast. We welcome any feedback you may have, or if you have suggestions for future content, please send an email to nicholas, that's N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S, dot vaneps, V-A-N-E-P-P-S, at falk.com. Thank you for all your hard work and have a safe shift.